today on the Tearsheet Podcast. We, we wanted to go slow with that. We were in beta stage for quite some time to ensure the product worked well. But what we rolled out in the U.S. was a very streamlined with our core product offering. You know, the FX piece of 28 currencies that you can carry on your wallet and, and some basic features. We wanted to ensure that worked well. It was seamless. We had no challenges with it. And now you're seeing us start to bolt on a lot of new products to that. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Zach Miller. Today's guest is Ronald Oliveira, the U.S. CEO of challenger bank Revolut. Ron has a lot of experience on the traditional side of banking as he takes over the reins for the European fintech's efforts stateside. We discuss the challenges and opportunities of the U.S. market. Ron describes the firm's product rollout cycle for Revolut, which really wants to be a global bank. We would be remiss if we didn't chat about the fintech versus incumbent bank scenario. And Ron's perspective is important, given the two worlds he's straddled. Ron Oliveira is my guest today on the Tearsheet Podcast. I wanted to tell you about Tearsheet's newest online conference, Day-to-Day 2020. Entire financial ecosystems are emerging around financial institutions and large fintech companies, with data at its core. We're spending three days hearing from top executives at firms like Fiserv, MX, Wells Fargo, Investnet Yodley, Plaid, and more, about how they are best leveraging customer data to help deliver better products and services. Day-to-Day 2020 is all about data sharing, data aggregation, and personalization. It's about the future of finance. For more information, click on the Day-to-Day Conference button at the top of our website, tearsheet.co. Hey, Zach. Yeah, Ron Oliveira. I'm the CEO for uh, Revolut and for the U.S. territories and all the markets in America. Um, And who am I? I I started in banking 25, 30 years ago. I should say the financial world. Um, actually was uh, went to get an agribusiness major and found that uh, went to a job fair, went to work for a bank, and uh, 25 years later, I'm the CEO of Revolut, and that's who I am. Well, welcome. Can we talk a little bit about maybe some of the steps that uh, you took to get to this role? Yeah, I, I really took a, a strong interest in, in fintech probably a decade ago and, and looking especially at the banking sector. I've been in finance most all of my career. Um, traditional banking for the most part, see, uh, held CEO roles, CCO roles. And I started to actually bank fin- fintech organizations at my last uh, bank um, and really took a, a keen interest in what they were doing. And I came to the pretty quick conclusion that maybe a decade ago, maybe 15 years ago, the environment wasn't right. It was where regulators weren't quite ready yet. The technology wasn't there. Um, but it became clear in today's world that those things were all aligning and those events were here. And I'm not saying we're in a revolution, but we're certainly in a strong evolution as we move toward that technology banking. Um, and so I started to look at companies that were out there and Revolut certainly bubbled to the top. It's, it's performance in, in the EU and the UK, very strong, over 10 million customers today. And I really felt the US marketplace was there and I could be the catalyst. I could be the catalyst that could merge and bring together traditional banking and what I think is the future of banking, which is a financial technology side of it. That's what got me here today. Awesome. Well, welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> so one of the things that, that has struck me about Revolut is that as, as some of the new blood and the new talent comes in, leadership talent I'm talking about, um, they, it looks like the bank has actually specifically looked for people like yourself with that like, you know, hard background within the, in, in the markets. Um, can you speak to that? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great observation because um, at Revolut, probably a year ago, I, I joined about six months ago. So about a year ago, I think Revolut definitely had came to the conclusion that they had moved well beyond just being a, a traditional travel card, if you will. And they were having a, a solid core group of clients that really wanted to make Revolut their bank and that and use that every single day in their transactions and in their lives. Um, and to do that, I think that point Revolut looked at what their market was and what they needed to do to accomplish that. Because when clients make that decision, they want you to be their primary bank. They have a lot more needs from a financial perspective. And so that's exactly what Revolut did. We started to look for some really strong folks that have deep financial knowledge and experience to marry with probably one of the best technology companies in the world, at least when it comes to financial products, and marry those two together. Take that experience in banking and know what the, the customer wants and be able to look at that, marry it with the technology Revolut has, and offer a whole new series of products that you see us rolling out, uh, not only in Europe, but we will be in the US over the coming months. So that's why that experience was brought into um, Revolut, and you see more of it coming in, um, I don't wanna say every day, but certainly on a regular strategic basis. That's why those folks there, all the way from the board at Revolut, as you see some of the key board members that have joined, um, mm -hmm. all the way down into the US territory, Zach. And and do you feel it's particularly important in the U.S. market? I just know, like you know, we, we started covering the challenger banks as they were emigrating from Europe to the to U.S. shores, and obviously it took it took longer than everybody expected, and we all we all understand why. Um, but it, what is different about the U.S. market, I guess, as challengers expand internationally? Yeah, Revolut. Um, I think U.S. market. I'm not sure it's necessarily significantly different. It might just be at a little higher level when it comes to regulatory scrutiny, when it comes to the, the competition. Every country has, has competition. I mean, my counterpart in Ireland as CEO there struggles every day as well to, to make sure that we're at the top of our game. But your question specific, specifically in the U.S. marketplace is that um, the regulatory burdens here are very high. We have somewhat of a convoluted regulatory system. Um, and for that, you need some really deep experience to navigate that. So that slows the process to a degree because we want to ensure that we're in line with everything. To get and belong in the U.S. marketplace from a financial perspective, it's, it's a privilege. You know, it, it's not a right. So you've got to earn your way through that. And so that, that's one of the parts. And the competition in the U.S. clearly um, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest market in the world. Um, everybody's here that wants to, you know, be be in the world global financial realm. So you have all the big names here. You have a lot of the upstarts here. You have Silicon Valley um, with a lot of technology and startup companies. So you have a combination of traditional, deep, long-rooted organizations, and then you have a, a good cadre of upstarts. So a combination of that with a, with a difficult regulatory environment um, makes the U.S. marketplace a, a, a challenge, and you need to go slow and careful to accomplish what you want to, because Revolut's goal, one of its absolute goals, is trust. And that's what most fintech companies are struggling with, is to ensure you have trust from your public that their money is safe and that everything is in as good, if not better order, than they're used to from their current financial organization. That was well explained. Thank you. Um, and, and you're, you ultimately went live in the U.S. Uh, through a partnership, right, with Metropolitan Commercial Bank, I think it was? 
Yes, that's correct. Late March, um, we already had the partnership with Metropolitan Commercial Bank in um, New York. Mm-hmm. And then um, we actually went public or live uh, late March. And we've been um, you know, out in the marketplace ever since. And are you continuing to pursue um, a, a banking, your own banking license? Right now, we've, we've got the partnership that we enjoy with uh, Metropolitan Commercial, a really good partner for us. It ensures that our clients' uh, deposits are FDIC insured up to the limits uh, of regulatory law, which is about 250000 per account, um, which is critical us to have that. Um, but back to my point earlier, as our clientele really strives to make Revolut their primary bank, we probably over the long term will be looking to explore to get a banking license. We're we definitely in that stage now of ex- exploratory times and we have chatted with regulators, but that is, that is often into the distance. We're gonna go slow and careful there and make sure we make the right decision because um, one, it's, it's a cost. Second of all, you wanna do it right. Um, and third, if we decide to move in that direction, we'll be able to offer a, a much more broader section of products than we can today. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So can we talk about, I guess, where you are in the rollout in the U.S. today? As you mentioned, going slow, building trust. Like, where are you, at least from a product standpoint in the U.S.? Yeah, Zach, that's, that's a good, really good question. What we tried to do in the U.S. is, and your point earlier about it took some time to, to launch, we, we wanted to go slow with that. We were in beta stage for quite some time to ensure the product worked well. But what we rolled out in the U.S. was a very streamlined with our core product offering, you know, the mm-hmm. FX piece of 28 currencies that you can carry on your wallet and, and some basic features. We wanted to ensure that worked well. It was seamless. We had no challenges with it. And now you're seeing us start to bolt on a lot of new products to that. Um, For example, we just added donations. We're putting in the junior program in a relatively um, short order. A loyalty program will be coming out, uh, looking at small business. So what you're going to see over the coming months is us adding those products carefully, testing, making sure that they're they're well suited for the U.S. marketplace and moving on to the next product. Because, you know, COVID-19 has been a challenge for all of us. But what we like to do when we come through all of this and we're, we're standing back to whatever the new normal is, um, that we have built uh, virtually all the features that are relevant today, not saying we're going to do more, but relative today that are ready for everybody that joins the Revolut family. That, that makes sense. And I guess from a product standpoint, um, are you looking for, how does Revolut think about product internationally? Is there a goal to have parity that should the pro, does the product look the same across geographies or, or do you have something specific in mind for each market that you launch into? Um, at our core, we'd like everything to be as, um, as similar as possible in every country. Cause if you look at, you know, what's our, what's our, our total goal here at the highest level, you know, we want to be a, a global kind of all in one personal financial app. All right. So at that, what that means is whatever country you're in, it should look as similar as possible and as many features as possible that are allowed in that country we should have available. And it should look the same as possible to you as a user. Um, so let's, let's talk about that. What, what does that mean? So if you're, if you're transferring money P to P, you know, person to person because you want, you want to send uh, some cash to a friend in, in Europe, um, you should be able to look at that app and you're a client that's in the U.S. It should look very similar. You're a client in the U.K. You should be able to, if you're sending money back in the other direction, the same thing. As a matter of fact, you're going to see an, a refresh 
of our, our app, our overall app here in the coming months. I won't put a date on it at this point mm -hmm. in time, but you're going to see that roll out that that's been in the works for quite some time. And it, it will slowly roll across our global footprint. Um, but at the end, in a short order, the app will all look the same as well, how you enter it, how you um, navigate through it. And hopefully most all products similar, except for where, where there's country specific issues. Interesting. Um, and you mentioned COVID. Obviously, we, it's hard to talk about banking today with that without mentioning it. I guess, even from a qualitative point of view, um, like how, how has Revolut's business in the U.S. Um, been impacted by that? You know, that if it was a six months or eight months ago and we were already obviously planning the U.S. rollout, you know, we had different thoughts about what the market was going to look like that in a pre-COVID world. Um, as we got closer and closer to to this to roll out and COVID situation came into play, um, there was a lot of discussion about you know should we launch, should we not, and and it came to a pretty quick conclusion that what we had to offer was as valuable, if not more valuable, in a COVID environment, being a completely mobile application, um, be able to do almost almost everything frictionless, frictionless price wise, um, extremely competitive. The FX feature, one of the best. Um, that you'll see in any product. So from that perspective, it was a pretty, I don't want to say easy decision. It, it wasn't, but it came to the conclusion that, you know, COVID, we should still move forward with this product. So that was kind of the, the set aside. Then when we got into COVID and we, we rolled the product out, what did we see and how did it feel? Um, what it felt like was most all of our clients initially, or a big portion of our clients were all referrals, Zach. These were, you know, folks that were in Europe already or had friends there and said, geez, you know, Revolut's in the U.S., sign up. Here's, here's what their app can do for you. So a lot of our business, much more than we anticipated pre-COVID, came from referrals from our family of, of customers that referred the company over and today is them. So that's what really I think was different in COVID for us as our customers came on board, a lot higher referral process, if you will. And then second of all, what's different is we've seen a lot more everyday transactions on the card, a much higher percent versus obviously travel um, and some of that. And we've seen a lot higher P2P uh, where folks are transferring money back and forth from country to country. Um, because I think just the lockdown that we're in today, you're seeing that uh, be a more common practice. So I appreciate that feedback on the on the word of mouth. Um, what are you doing formally, I guess, for user acquisition or distribution within within the U.S. market? When you say formally, Zach, maybe just elaborate on the, the question. <laughs> well, I mean, word of mouth is great. Are, do, are, do you also have um, other marketing activities to bring in new customers? Oh, very good. Okay, understood. Um, we. We looked at that and initially we had a, a pretty big rollout that coming out um, pre-COVID is what I mean. You know, very much performance marketing, put it out there, a lot of advertisement, um, put it to in front of everyone so that we could get some name recognition, some traction from that perspective. Obviously, we put that off the table um, once COVID became a, one of the major issues in the world. Um, and we haven't turned that back on. So the only thing that we're really doing in that is we're, we're looking at a loyal, loyalty program I talked about a little bit before, which is kind of the perk side of things. Mm -hmm. So there'd be an enticement to 
people. Um, but outside of that, beyond having chats with folks like you and, and some others to put our name out there and let everybody know we're there, we have not done very little. It's been an organic growth all the way. That's not to say that you know once things start to normalize, that we'll take a look at this and how we want to maybe um, do a little more stronger marketing and a little more presence because our name recognition is you know, very, very low in the U.S. Um, so that that we definitely have to work on. We're not going to get to the market share that we want to have. Um, and I'm not saying we want to be a household name, but we certainly want to be listed as one of the best organizations and at the tip of somebody's tongue when they talk about fintech companies. Um, but right now, we're not doing much beyond just organic. Got it. And and who would you say is your target um, customer in the U.S.? You know, that, back to your, that, that dovetails right into your COVID question. <laughs> exactly. I, I think. Yeah, yeah, very well done. Um, the, who is our target audience? You, you would have saw before our target audience, you know, was, was folks that were, uh, you know, expats that were here, uh, travelers that were here, foreign exchange students, you know, those, and, and they're, they still are um, mm -hmm. to no degree. They're, they're still very much were our, our target audience initially, if you will. Um, and, and we have that, but what's, what's starting to, to appear is that what I just described is a young age group, okay, from a demographic perspective, um, for the most part, not expats, but they're, they're a young group. We've seen our target market start to expand out from, a, from, a, from an age perspective, and we've got groups now that much higher level than we anticipated in folks because of working from home uh, that normally would be, you know, walking down to your traditional brick and mortar branch and depositing a check and talking to the teller and getting some you know, milk and cookies um, to folks that said, wait a minute, you know, I have to take another approach here. That's not a safe thing in this environment to do. So our, our mark, though not our target market, but where we see we start to get a much broader look and, and breadth of demographics to who is our clients now. So that part has been really welcome. And we're looking into that and how we can continue to grow that because that's a group that they need safety, they need confidence in us, um, that, so that when this does lift, they will continue to use us. Because right now we're a great card for them um, at this point when they can't go down to the branch. You know, they can turn their pin on or off, they can cancel their card. They've got a lot of good safety links in Revolut that encourages individuals in that category to feel confident in us. So we have to, we have to make sure we're promoting that and we're putting it out there as just one example to where we're seeing our, our client demographics change from what would have been six months ago. I'd, I'd like to go back, Ron, to something you'd mentioned before, the perks program. Um, can you describe, I guess, some of the perks available and, and, and how the loyalty program fits into, I guess, your overall strategy? Yeah, the, uh, you know, we looked at, you know, in, in the U.S., uh, I don't want to, I, I have, you know, two, three credit cards in my pocket. I assume everybody has a credit card or two. And, um, in the U.S., people tend to use credit cards a little bit more than the, than we see across Europe. And I bring that up not because our product is a credit card. It is not. It is a debit card. But a lot, well, a lot of times when people say, you know, what's your favorite credit card? It's usually driven by perks. It's driven by, you know, a, a cash back program or it's driven by travel points, some, something in that perspective. So that's kind of how we looked at it. Is say, how can we take what's sitting in your wallet in a credit card that you keep because of those perks, and how can we put some of those the best possible we can onto our card? So now you have sort of our strategy in there. And so then it's now down to 
the one I mentioned earlier, a cash back type of program that you'll see at the higher level. We have a basic card, a premium and, and a metal card, which we'll be rolling out in the future. And there'll be some you know, cash back component to that. And then we're just getting our list uh, of loyalty partners together and we haven't mm -hmm. launched that yet. So I gotta be, I, I don't wanna get a front running on that, but I'm giving you the, the view of you know, what it's gonna look like when you think about a credit card and what, what you have on yours today. We're looking to have something similar on ours as well. We do have a donations program, though that's not a perks, where you can round up and donate to uh, several of your favorite charities. But again, I, I'm not sure that that's a quasi perk that's already out there that I can speak to. The others will be forthcoming. Okay. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit you know, as we get to the end of the conversation um, and sort of where digital banking um, or pure digital banks like, like a Revolut um, compete uh, with incumbents. We're, you know, we, we, we saw JP Morgan launch Finn and then shutter it. And um, what do you see playing out right now between sort of incumbents and, and digital? That's, that's the, uh, the great question I hear asked by, uh, you know, a lot of folks. And, and I've got maybe just a little different look at it. You know, I, I hear a lot of times that uh, you say, well, there's a, there's a big revolution going on. It's going to be a rush to fintechs and, and traditional banks are going to, you know, shutter and the door is going to be closed. Um, I, I, I don't go down that path. Um, having been in the traditional world and now the fintech world, looking at both sides of that and having a pretty good insight into it is that I think what we're looking at is, an, is this evolutionary period taking place is that your traditional banks are trying to move as best they can toward um, a little more mobile app centric, a little bit toward less traditional when it comes to the delivery of the product. Okay, so I see I see that taking place. Um, and on the other side, the, the fintechs are looking at it and saying, if we're going to be mainstream, and clearly, the I think that that vote has already been cast. There's going to be some solid fintech mainstream organizations. That that question, I think, has been laid to rest already. So you're going to see sort of an evolution of those two organizations or those two types of delivery systems sort of blur together. You know, Revolut has no intention of having brick and mortar. Um, I'm not saying that, but the delivery process, think of those that keyword, how the product is delivered is going to slowly start to the lines are going to blur between traditional. Traditional has struggles because they have so many legacy systems and they're just built around that type of delivery. And that's a tough way to pivot. It takes time to do that. Where the fintech can pivot much quicker and move toward the traditional side as far as delivery products and services than your traditional can. I am not to say, and I'll finish this with the fact that banks in a traditional sense, meaning I'm going to say community banks. I'm not talking about your money center banks here, Zach, but I'm talking about community banks, the ones that are embedded in uh, different small towns, mid-sized towns all across America. They are vital to our country, and I don't see them ever going away. They have people, that, local people sitting on the board, participating there, and add something to, to the fabric of our country. So I don't see, you know, as some people say, all traditional banking disappearing. Not at all. There's a role and a niche, but it's going to look different through the process. And, and that's just, I'll, I'll stop right there because I could chat about that all day long. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I, and I think our coverage and, and my personal perspective um, dovetails pretty well with, with what you just said. Um, well, do you see, do you see M&A down the road? I mean, do you see some of the money center banks actually acquiring some of the, the best upstarts? I think you've you've seen some of that already, but it's not under your traditional M and A. When I when I was in my previous employment and financing 
fintechs, if you were, or mainly technology companies, let's just say that, not fintechs. Um, you would look at the investor deck there, Zach, and you would be surprised to see how many mainstream banks in their investment arms were investing in technology companies early on. Um, and not just, you know, some of the main names, but a lot of your banks, they have, they were putting seed dollars into these startups. So there's where a lot of it's going already. That's why I think to some degree, you haven't seen these huge M&A and I'll, and I'll get to that a little more in detail in a second, but they're already investing early on because they want to get on the front side of that. Look at that technology. Is something they can use? Is it have value? And, and you see a lot of that taking place. And that's been going on now for quite some time. So that's under the radar. I call it M&A under the radar because some of those organizations eventually roll into um, your traditional banks. And that's where some of the, you know, upstart technology they have has come from. It hasn't been internally, you know, organically built out. It's been through those investments in smaller in smaller organizations. And then second, to your MA, I'm sure, I'm sure banks are looking at that. Um, but the issue with that right now, obviously, is is the market and the value of, of mm-hmm. your cap. And and do you have the currency to be able to pull that off first? And second of all, some of the fintech companies that look like the most attractive, though they've taken a big dip recently in valuations, um, we're getting pretty pricey to um, to tackle, if you will. So I think there's that, that balance of do you want to do you want to maybe merge with it with a large fintech or buy a large fintech out, but pay a, a lot for it? And are you going to get your value? And it's going to be a very expensive price tag. So a lot of it's been going on at the small and medium sized investment level. Got it. I mean, I was, as you were saying that, Ryan, I was just thinking like it could something crazy could happen longer term where, you know, the fintech actually acquires one of the older brands. But uh, I, I agree with you. I don't I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, well, yeah, I mean, think of the Think of the, the logic the time of that. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's that was exactly you just read my mind. That's scary. Um, that's exactly yeah. kind of that flip reversal. Right. Um, and on this side, though, if you look at a fintech going to going to buy a, a traditional bank, there's a lot in a traditional bank that a financial technology company is not going to want that you're going to have mm-hmm. to pay for it. So, yep. you know, it's gonna, you're going to buy a lot of branches, you're going to buy legacy systems. Um, it's going to be huge impact to their customer base because you're switching them to a mobile model. Um, that's a huge customer. There's a lot of breakage there, I call it, um, that, that you'd have to get an awfully good price. And I'm not sure at this point it's worth it. And that's probably why you haven't seen it taking place. That was also a good point that you made that they're sort of early stage investors. So they, they are able to, to sniff around and kick the tires a little bit from afar to see kind of what's really happening. Is it more than that though? Are they, are they, cause that type of early stage investing doesn't, that's not, that doesn't necessarily lead to M and a, but that, that gives them, I guess, a little more skin in the game. Is, is that what you were saying? Yeah. What it, what it does is if you're, if you're a relatively, you know, round a round series, a series B company, you know, and it's relatively inexpensive to get in at that point. Um, most investors, non-bank investors are getting in because they want the upside, right? They, they want the upside, the stock appreciation and, and all of that. Um, but a traditional bank, not that they don't want the upside either, but they're looking at that technology piece and they want to learn from it. They want to see, is it viable? Could they use it in their organization? And um, you know, without naming names, you see that happening where they basically just buy the majority shares and adopt that technology and roll it in and put it under their brand, their label. And you and I as a customer never know the difference, except for we have a better experience now. So that's where it, that's where it comes into to play. 
is, is using that technology and just embedding it in their organization to get a jump start, a fast, a fast forward, if you will, rather than try and create it internally or develop it internally. Understood. Ron, I have one last question for you. Um, and that's, um, I guess, the evolving um, expectations from U- U.S. users, U.S. customers. Can you talk about having been in the industry for so long, I guess, what that has looked like? The, the evolution of customers and what they're expecting. And what's, yeah, exactly. From, yeah. Uh, what they're expecting from their financial institution. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm not sure at the highest level, at the core, that's changed. Uh, what, what, what I mean by that is, you know, there's a lot of doubt of concern of, of your information at, you know, pick any of the large, not fintechs, but technology companies, you know, not Google or Facebook or, you know, any of those that are out there that you and I have a healthy skepticism and rightfully so that our technology, that our knowledge and our um, information is being used in, in fashions to market to us. But we accept that, Zach. We accept that uh, with skepticism because we get the service free, okay? We get it free, so we accept it. On a FinTech, complete different situation. And this gets to your question, what do customers expect? As much as they don't like banks, I think, you know, if you do a survey, there are banks, how much people like banks is probably pretty low um, in, in the criteria, all right? Um, but the one thing that everyone expects that before, now, and I believe in the future is that their money is safe and they can trust and they do have a government behind them that's going to support them from an insurance base. So that to me is, is what customers, that hasn't changed. I don't think that's going to change um, at all. That, that's the driver. Then after that, then it's going to be what a fintech offers that meets what they have today but they can give it to them in a lot easier, cost-effective approach. And in simple terms, Revolut and any of, of other technology companies in the financial space, our, our customers don't come from other fintech companies. Our, com- our customers, our new customers that aren't referrals, come from traditional banks that folks are just kind of fed up with the fees and you know the, the lack of transparency and all the things that go with a large bank. So when they pivot and they make that decision that, that they want to move, a fintech company, what is the expectations to your question? The expectations is you're giving me everything that my, my bank has today, which is trust, insurance, and I know my money's safe and I can, I can get it anytime I want and it's available. Now provide me something that I don't get from my organization and for gosh awful sure, make sure you're, you're transparent with pricing. It's reasonable. And if not, it's better deal than I had before. That's kind of the, uh, the client, if you, you know, we do a lot of client surveys and I'm paraphrasing, but that's really what a lot of our clients are saying. Ron, thanks so much for spending time with us on the Tearsheet podcast today. I appreciate the opportunity and the interest 